This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, you'll hear from Blaine Seeley of San Luis Obispo County's Groundwater Sustainability Department. The big message that we are trying to incorporate into the various strategies, measures, and projects is to make sure that whatever we do is equitable. Also, this week, there are opportunities for Central Coast residents to comment on the future of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. Come out to every one of these public opportunities and speak or to go to their websites because you can provide written comments. And these things are also webcast. You don't even have to sit there in person. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, February 13th, 2023. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with Agenda Breakdown. Welcome to Agenda Breakdown, a podcast that explores how cities and counties make decisions and how you can have a say. I'm Kim Bishop, and today we're going to talk about the laws that limit housing development in downtown San Luis Obispo and a proposal that would change them. Like most cities, San Luis Obispo has laws on the books that limit the construction of new housing because having too much housing in a given neighborhood used to be a common concern among city residents. Of course, times have changed and the lack of housing, specifically affordable housing, has topped the city's list of priorities in recent years. So city leaders are proposing a plan that would remove some of the obstacles to building more housing units in the downtown core. It's called the Downtown Flexible Density Program, and here to tell us what that means is Michael Codron, Community Development Director for the City of SLO. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Kim. I'm excited to be here. So for starters, what does the term flexible density mean? Flexible density is a way to enable more housing in a particular area. So Normally, in a development program, cities, jurisdictions that regulate land use have property development standards of all kind. Density is one of those property development standards that essentially caps the number of housing units that can be constructed in a particular area. The city's flexible density proposal is one that would create more flexibility, would allow more residential units despite the density standards that are in our codes. And how do the density laws currently restrict downtown housing? That's a great question, and and this is an important concept for people to understand. And I think that if you imagine a downtown building as as a box, and you think about the different things that can fill up that box, we have a standard for density that creates an artificial constraint. In other words, you can build a box that's relatively big, but when you talk about housing, you can't fill up that box with housing units because you run up against our our limits. And so what flexible density does is allows you to fill up that box, and it allows you to do that with a particular type of housing unit that we're looking for, which is the studio or one-bedroom apartment, 600 square feet or less. So I'm imagining that box filled with housing, and obviously it's constrained by the physical confines of the downtown area. So with growth, does that mean going up? It can mean going up, although I think that when you look at downtown, historically, our downtown had housing 
above the ground floor. A lot of two and three story buildings in our downtown core with commercial storefronts, which we always want to maintain. In fact, in the 1950s, about 5% of all of the population of Slow lived downtown in the downtown core. Hmm. Uh, we had over a thousand people living in the downtown core, whereas today it's about 200 people or less. What happened in the 1960s is that offices became more attractive than housing. As the city built housing in the Laguna Lake neighborhood and in other parts of the city, you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s, those spaces as housing above the ground floor downtown became less attractive and they got converted to offices. So we don't have to go up to realize the benefits of flexible density. In fact, what this might do is make conversion of office spaces to small housing units a lot more feasible for uh, property owners downtown. I know that there's less demand for commercial retail space now than there was, say, in the 60s. Is there also less demand for office space? Post-COVID, we're learning that there is less demand, at least today, there is less demand for office space. Time will tell whether that comes back. And that's a little bit of the story of downtown. As I was mentioning, it used to be housing above the ground floor, and now it's primarily office above the ground floor. And maybe with the changing economy, we'll switch back and have have more housing downtown. You're listening to Agenda Breakdown. I'm Kim Bishop, and I'm here today with Michael Codron, Community Development Director for the City of Slow. So, yeah, downtown has been changing, and and change is a constant. And another constant is that people tend to be concerned when there's a change that happens intentionally. What are some of the concerns that you've heard from community members about changes to the density laws? Well, the response to the uh, flexible density program has been primarily positive so far, but there are concerns being expressed, and we're paying close attention to those. The uh, one thing that I'm, you know, have been conscious of from the very beginning is that the downtown core includes a historic district. So our downtown historic district includes, you know, some of the most important buildings in our in our history that we wouldn't want to see, you know, redeveloped in any fashion. And so understanding like the opportunities that this creates, but also the fact that there are constraints is an important part of our program in terms of how we communicate. We have a very effective and restrictive uh, historic preservation ordinance. And so even though this new program would apply within the downtown historic district, it would not enable major changes to masterless historic properties, for example. Um, Demolition is outright prohibited in, in the historic district. Do you have the sense that changing the density laws will make a significant dent in the affordable housing problem? We are trying to produce housing of all types, and this is a a type of housing that we're seeing more demand for. The population per household in the city has been precipitously falling from over 2.6 people per household in the mid to early 1990s to closer to two people per household today. And that means, you know, you have to build more housing to accommodate your population. And so, you know, this is a type of housing that we see being important and valuable. One of the things that we're hearing from people that is a concern is related to affordability. You know, these are not going to be affordable units. And that's correct in the technical sense. The city has an affordable housing program, and those units are made affordable 
because the city has a deed restriction on the sales price or on the rent price, there's this government mechanism to ensure affordability. And that's a targeted affordability for people that qualify based on their income. But in the case of this type of housing, what we're trying to accomplish is not deed-restricted affordable housing, but housing that's more attainable. So housing that hits a price point that people can afford, that people can you know, make the choice to allocate more of their income to housing if they want to live you know, in that environment, in that unit downtown, et cetera. Sure. It's a completely different market than people who want to live maybe walking distance to downtown, you know, where, where they could have a little more space. These would be, what, smaller than 600 square feet, which is small. And the trade-off, I guess, is that you're right there. You're right in the heart of things. Exactly. I think it's an exciting environment that ultimately we think would help both economic development and help with the city's housing supply. Supply is another way that, you know, you can affect the price of housing. More supply should reduce the upward trend of housing prices. At the same time, we know that we can't build ourselves out of high prices in coastal California. That's not realistic. And we have constraints around supply as it relates to water supply, as it relates to transportation and and managing that. There are a variety of things that we do in the planning process to determine what our our growth will be. And this program would provide, at least initially, up to 500 new units in the downtown core. And the number 500 is out there because it fits within the city's growth projections. And ultimately, the city council may like the program and want it to continue, but that will most likely require some additional work on the general plan, engaging with the community, to understand more about, you know, where population is headed in San Luis Obispo in the future. But for today, you know, our population projections are in the 57,000 to 58,000 range. We're about 48,000 today. And so there's a ways to go, but we don't want to over-program. We're aligned with what our general plan build out would provide for in terms of population. And then at some point, the the community and the city council would drive a discussion about if if or when it should increase. Who are the biggest supporters of this idea in the community? Like, are they downtown business holders? Are they, you know, folks who maybe work in slow but haven't been able to afford to live here? Who are you hearing positive feedback from? That's a great question. And I think it's been something that we have been working on over time. So I think the first time we thought about this concept of how to enable more and smaller units downtown was after our our downtown concept plan was updated in 2017 and 2018. And there are some incredible vignettes and renderings of development opportunities in the downtown core in terms of you know, blocks that have a lot of surface level parking that have the the opportunity to redevelop. But again, our density standards don't 
allow for the kind of development that would really make a project like that successful. You would end up having much larger units that maybe aren't as appropriate for our downtown core as they would be in a neighborhood in another part of town. And so trying to align those things has been important. And the idea, I think, started with the downtown concept plan. It's a program in our housing element as well to pursue flexible density opportunities along with a number of other things. And I think that uh, Town Slow and the Chamber of Commerce both have a, a strong interest in development downtown. So we're engaging with them. We don't have direct support from them yet. I mean, like everybody else, um, the community is evaluating the proposal to see if it achieves our policies and programs that we've outlined in our in our housing element. And if somebody wanted to take a look at the proposal and share their thoughts with the city, what's the best way to do that? Best way to do that is to go to slowcity.org and search flexible density. And the first link that'll come up will take you right to the page that explains the program, shows you what the program documentation is. So you can read the ordinance if you're interested. Or if you're just interested in letting us know what you think, we also linked from that page is an open city hall survey where staff is evaluating all of the, the input from the community. And it's a lot of very positive input some people want us to do more, and we are doing more. It's just there's a number of, you know, we're doing one program at a time, essentially. So this is one of many. But then there are also uh, concerns, again, about affordability, like that these units won't be affordable. And, you know, I agree with that. They're not going to be affordable in the traditional sense or the way we, we define affordability. But, again, they may be more accessible to people because they'll be at a lower price point. Right. And it's adding inventory to the city. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. And when will a final decision be made on all of this? So the ordinance is going to the Planning Commission on February 22nd and to the City Council on March 21st. So first opportunity to weigh in if in a public setting would be at the Planning Commission meeting on, on Wednesday night, February 22nd. And then depending on the Planning Commission's recommendation, we would be in front of the City Council with their support on March 21st. And those are both great opportunities to weigh in. Listeners can do that by email, by by calling in, or by showing up and providing public testimony in person. Thank you so much, Michael. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to get the word out and look for more feedback from the community on this proposal. Now it's time for today's action item. The Open City Hall survey on downtown housing is open through Wednesday, February 15th. I'll post a link in the show notes, or you can access it directly at slowcity.org slash opencityhall. After the survey closes, this topic will go to the Planning Commission on February 22nd and then to City Council on March 21st. If you want to stay informed about those meetings and other opportunities to give feedback to city leaders, subscribe to the city's email notifications at slowcity.org, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. Today's episode was produced by Samantha Reardon with music by Wes Bishop. If you liked the show, you can go to agendabreakdown.com to listen to past episodes and follow us on social media. You can also find us and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Bishop. Thanks for listening to Agenda Breakdown. This is KCBX Public Radio, and you're listening to Issues and Ideas. Next, we'll take a look at groundwater sustainability. Correspondent Stu Soren reports.
While we continue to explore the effects of climate change on our central coast, water has been the topic driving the conversation. In our last two interviews, we learned that groundwater supplies about 50% of our total daily needs, including residential, industrial, and agricultural users. Our guest today is Blaine Reilly. Blaine serves as Director of Groundwater Sustainability for the County of San Luis Obispo. He comes from the private sector and previously worked as a consulting civil engineer and hydrologist for the past 40 years. He received his education at the University of Arizona and Oklahoma State University and has a PhD in civil engineering and hydrology. Blaine, welcome. So happy to have you here today. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Great. So Blaine, before we start talking about the Groundwater Sustainability Department, are there any national, federal, state laws regarding the use of groundwater currently in effect? Yeah, I would say the primary law that, uh, that we have in effect in California uh, that has to deal with groundwater is the uh, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act uh, that was put in place, I think, in 2015. So it's a relatively new law, um, but that's really the primary legal mechanism that we have uh, in place right now that is uh, kind of driving groundwater management in the state. So is that then what created the Groundwater Sustainability Department in, within the county? Yeah, it was the impetus for the county to, to form the Department of Groundwater Sustainability, yes. And the role of that department is? The role of the department is to serve as the county's representative in our, what we call our, our managed groundwater basins. So those are groundwater basins in the county that either fall under the regulations of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, or it's referred to as SIGMA, or um, groundwater basins that we have in the county that are managed under a court order that was established through the adjudication process. And that happened in 2015? The SIGMA, I believe SIGMA was passed or adopted and went into effect in 2015, 2015 or 2016, yeah. And in San Luis Obispo, how many of these basins do we have? We have what we call six managed basins. So those are basins that either fall under the regulation of SIGMA uh, or under uh, a court-ordered adjudication. There are other areas in the, in the county that do have groundwater that people and, and businesses and agriculture rely on, uh, but those are not in what we would classify as, as uh, managed groundwater basins. So those are in the wheelhouse of our public works department. So we separate a little bit within the county. And the bases that are under the purview then of SIGMA, are those the bases that you are directly responsible for? Yes, I'm the county's representative in each of those basins, although there are, there are other entities that are also involved in the management of those basins. Briefly, what are those basins? Those are the Paso Robles groundwater basin, the Atascadero groundwater basin, uh, the Cuyama groundwater basin, and then the San Luis Obispo Edna Valley groundwater basin. How does the management of these basins getting to sustainability actually going to work? What's that going to look like? Well, each of those basins that we just talked, that we just listed, those are regulated under SIGMA. And under SIGMA, the management entities that are responsible for, for the management of the groundwater resources in each of those basins are groundwater sustainability agencies. Those are established under the rules of SIGMA. And in each of those basins that I just described, those, those four Sigma basins, there are multiple groundwater sustainability agencies in each of those basins. The county 
serves as a groundwater sustainability agency, or we refer to them as GSAs. The county is a GSA in each of those basins, but there are other GSAs also that have responsibilities in each of those basins. And how does that process work? So you'll have, you have several different agencies that are responsible, and is the county then the managing entity? Actually, no. So for an example, uh, let's talk about uh, Paso Robles Groundwater Basin. So Paso Robles Groundwater Basin, there are four groundwater sustainability agencies or four GSAs that have areas of jurisdiction within the Paso Groundwater Basin. Those are the city of Paso Robles is a GSA. The San Miguel Community Services District is a GSA. The Shandon San Juan Water District is a GSA. And then each of those three GSAs have uh, areas of coverage. Uh, And then uh, everything within the basin that does not fall within one of those GSAs area of coverage is falls within the county GSA. And are all parties on the same page, or is there any competing interests within these basins, what the final result will look like? In the Paso Basin, um, those four GSAs operate uh, under the terms of a memorandum of agreement, uh, that which was established, I think, in uh, like 2017, as I recall. So that memorandum of agreement sets forth the uh, terms and conditions of how the groundwater basin is to be managed, and then each of those GSAs agreed to those terms and conditions when they signed the memorandum of agreement. Tell us a little bit about the process and the timing and how long it's going to take to actually come to agreements. Again, using the Paso Basin as an example, under Sigma, we have 20 years from the time that our, that our plan was submitted. We formulated a groundwater sustainability plan, or we refer to them as a GSP, uh, and that is a requirement of Sigma. So Paso Basin, the four GSAs collaborated in the development of a GSP, a plan, uh, which was submitted to the Department of Water Resources in January of, ni- of 2020. Uh, and from that point, we have 20 years to bring the basin into a sustainable condition. And that sustainable condition is defined in that GSP. Every groundwater basin in the state that's regulated under Sigma has the local control and and authority to define what sustainable conditions are, subject to some specific criteria that the law sets forth. If you're just joining us, I'm Stu Soren, and you're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. My guest today is Blaine Reilly, Director of Groundwater Sustainability for the County of San Luis Obispo. Based upon current usage, let's just stick with the Paso Robles Basin, uh, based upon current usage, is it sustainable for 20 years as it currently operates? No. So how are you going to maintain it for 20 years then and make sure that we get to the point that it is sustainable? So the Paso Basin, if we look at the recent history, the Paso Basin on an average annual basis, there's something like between thirteen and 14,000 acre feet of groundwater that is being pumped out of the basin that exceeds the recharge capability on an average basis going back into the basin. So in order to get that basin sustainable, we've got to find a way to either bring in uh, and recharge thirteen to 14,000 acre feet a year uh, of new supplemental water into the basin, or we have to 
find a way to reduce pumping by 13 to 14,000 acre feet on an average annual basis, or, and this is the strategy that we're that we're uh, uh, following, is to use a combination of both of those two strategies: bring supplemental water into the groundwater basin and use that in lieu of groundwater pumping, and then also um, uh, uh, implement strategies to reduce groundwater pumping to make up that deficit. And if you did indeed bring in supplemental water, where would that come from? In the Paso Basin, the supplemental water is coming from a number of different sources. One of the big sources is using recycled wastewater, water that is being treated by both the city of Paso Robles at their wastewater treatment plant and the San Miguel Community Services District at their wastewater treatment plant. Treat that water to a quality that meets current standards so that it can be used for agricultural irrigation. And then that water, that recycled water that is being then delivered to farmers for their use for irrigation purposes will be done through an agreement where the farmers then will agree to reduce their groundwater pumping by the uh, amount of water that is being provided through recycled supplies. That's going to be one of the primary supplies, and that's happening. I mean, the really good news is the city of Paso Robles is moving aggressively towards building their recycled water distribution system so that the farmers can actually take advantage of it. The first phase of their recycled water distribution project, or we call it a purple pipe project, is due to start construction very soon, I think uh, within the next couple of months. It's really good news. San Miguel is a little bit behind Paso Robles, but they're moving uh, forward aggressively as well. The recycled water supply is an augmented supply. Um, that's pr- those are the two primary sources that we have in that basin. Then we're also looking at the possibility of using other water supplies. For instance, even though the, the water supply from Lake Nacimiento uh, the Slow County component of it and, and all the di- uh, contractors that use NASI water uh, in Slow County, it's fully allocated. So there's really no more water to be, well, that there's a, there may or may not be. But right now our allocation is fully allocated, but it's not being fully used every year. And so there's an opportunity to take the water that isn't used each year from that from our allocation of Lake Nacimiento and potentially use that and provide access for that water to the agricultural community and the irrigators to again use that supply, that surface water supply in lieu of groundwater pumping so that they can reduce uh, their groundwater pumping. And then we're also looking at uh, the potential to use some of our unallocated waters from the state water project. So those are really the, the the supplemental water supplies that are, we're looking at potentially bringing in to the basin f- to help with the problem. And that thir- that would provide then the thirteen to 14,000 acre feet annually that you would need to maintain at least a net zero. No, that's even under, even if we maximize uh, the benefit from each of those different supplies, you know, the NASI supply, City of Paso Robles recycled water supply, San Miguel recycled water supply, and potentially even some state water project supply, that probably is not going to be enough to make up that deficit, that 13 to 14,000 acre foot deficit. So to get the rest of the way, we're going to have to reduce pumping in the basin. And when you start talking about reducing pumping, 
obviously large agricultural users, are, are, are they being consulted? Or are they part of this process? Yeah, they absolutely are. Um, first of all, the Shannon San Juan uh, Groundwater Water District uh, GSA is their membership is primarily, uh, well, I think almost exclusively uh, agricultural property holders, and most of them, or a good percentage of them, uh, have their land uh, in irrigated agriculture. Uh, so they're a part, I mean, they're an intimate part of the process and developing the solutions and strategies. And then there are also other entities in the basin. There's the Estrella El Pomar Water District that is part of the conversation and is working collaboratively with the GSAs and other stakeholders in the basin to develop strategies and implement strategies, uh, pumping reduction strategies to make up that deficit, and then other stakeholders as well. The wine grape industry especially is uh, very involved in developing the solution. I'm, and I assume then, again, there are the four bases that you talked about. I assume there are similar kinds of concerns and constraints in all four of those bases. Uh, there are. And each one, you know, as you can imagine, each one's different. Each one has, you know, slightly different uh, problems, slightly different challenges. Uh, for instance, the uh, San Luis Obispo Edna Valley groundwater basin, it also is in deficit, but it's a much lower volume of water that is needed to make up the difference to bring it into sustainability. And so the strategies to get there in that basin are going to be a little bit different than they are in the Paso Basin. The Atascadero groundwater basin really is not in deficit. It's already in a generally sustainable condition. The Cuyama Basin is a slightly different animal because that basin is a large elongated basin that straddles four different counties. And so our slice, San Luis Obispo County's slice of the basin, is pretty small and in an area where there isn't a lot of um, a lot of pumping, uh, whereas the areas of that basin that are in Santa Barbara County and Kern County, some of those areas that have intense groundwater pumping and probably have bigger challenges to solve than we have in, in some of our other basins. If you're just joining us, I'm Stu Soren, and you're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. My guest today is Blaine Reilly, Director of Groundwater Sustainability for the County of San Luis Obispo. So you've got a 20-year window to come up with the plan. Are there interim goals that are set along the way? Well, we have a 20-year period to bring the basin into a sustainable condition. The initial plan for each of these basins has already been developed. Those are the GSPs, or the Groundwater Sustainability Plans. So now we're in the process of implementing those plans. And those plans, as we move forward, it's like any plan. Uh, once you start, you realize that you need to make changes, right? So as we are implementing each of the GSPs, we're also evaluating you know, what's working, what's not working, and then using adaptive management strategies to strengthen what's working and the things that aren't working, you know, get rid of those and maybe potentially bring on new strategies. So, yeah, we have 20 years in each of these basins from the date that the Groundwater Sustainability Plan was submitted to bring them into sustainability. Each of the plans provide benchmarks that we need to meet along the way so that we can't just, we can't just wait for 20 years and go, oh, did we get there or not? We're tracking it on an annual basis. We produce an annual report, basically a report card for basin health for each of these basins um, every year, and then use that information to make decisions about, you know, what should we do next? Got it. When these reports are done and brought these basins to the point where they are sustainable, 
Will there be legal recourses against individual users that actually are not following the rules? We all hear the stories of, you know, the small local winery that grew old vines infidel. They sold, corporate buyer came in, tore out the old vines in, put in new grapes that require a lot more water. Will there be any kinds of regulations prohibiting those kinds of things happening? Uh, Yes, there will be, or at least Sigma allows us to implement those regulations. And, you know, we intend to do that. We're developing some of those now. The big message that we are trying to incorporate into the various strategies, measures, and projects that we are moving forward with is to make sure that whatever we do is equitable. So that's a great example. If an operation, just as you described, that that is historically been very water conscious, implemented best management practices, good farming practices, use very, very little water, we want to make sure that the burden that we put on an operator like that as far as managing the the basin, the burden that we put on them is equitable compared to somebody that isn't doing that, that is not using best management practices, that is not using efficient water conservation measures and paying attention to water use. So that equity is being considered and implemented and embedded in essentially everything that we do. Will there be a standard set then for the amount of water usage per acre or per crop? I mean, how, how will that be measured? That's one of the things we're currently working on, and that is you can't manage what you can't measure, right? I mean, the old adage. We make estimates on an annual basis as far as how much water each farming operation, each irrigator is using, but they're estimates, and they're, they're not based on the best available science that we have right now. So we're looking at taking that best available science, that best available technology that is currently out there, and using that as we move forward to measure or develop estimates of how much groundwater is being used by each grower. Once we know or have a a good understanding of how much water is everybody using, then we can use that as a basis for making decisions about how much water should you be allowed to use. If we implement pumping fees or groundwater extraction fees, we're going to use that information to guide us in how much each of those folks should be charge for their portion of uh, the solution. So you believe that you will then have the right to actually monitor water usage of individual users? Yes, Sigma gives us that authority. That's correct. And generally speaking, the process that you're going through, is it timely? Is it timely enough at this point? Yes, I believe so. I think it's like anything. It takes a while to get things in motion, right? These are, these are big challenges. These are big problems. It's a brand new law. So groundwater basins around the state, we're all faced with the same challenges. How do we take this plan that we've developed and we don't have a lot of other people that we could look over their shoulder and go, oh, how do you do it? Or how did you do it? Because we're all doing it at the same time. But we're all collaborating statewide and learning together, right? People always go, so, you know, show me what, show me the money, show me what you've done. There's not much to be shown yet, but that will be changing very, very soon. So a little patience is is something that's important. So it sounds like then with Sigma, each county in the state has set up their own uh, groundwater management sustainability? Yes. Each groundwater basin in the state that was determined to be medium or high priority. Uh, So that's not every single groundwater basin in the state, but it's the majority of them. Each medium and high priority groundwater basin 
uh, was required to develop a groundwater sustainability plan and then implement that plan and bring that groundwater basin into a sustainable condition in 20 years. And you all started at about the same time. We're all, we all started about the same time. Yeah, like Paso Basin was also designated in critical overdraft. The critical overdraft basins in the state got a two-year head start, and then the other basins followed in two years later. It's going to take a lot of people working together and finding consensus to achieve the goals that we need to achieve. And remember that we don't have a choice. If we don't achieve sustainability under local control and you know through the GSAs implementing the projects and the management actions that we've identified, Sigma says that the state will come in and do it for us. And if the state comes in and does it for us, A, we've lost local control, we've lost that local sensitivity to what's right and wrong for the individuals. It's really important for everybody to keep that in mind. It's really important that if we maintain local control, we're going to get a better solution and a more equitable solution and a fair solution as opposed to if we let the state come in and do it under state control. Blaine, this has been great. I cannot tell you how much we appreciate having you here today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Stu Soren, and my guest today has been Blaine Reilly, Director of Groundwater Sustainability for the County of San Luis Obispo. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Up next, the FDA recently granted accelerated approval for a new drug to help slow cognitive decline in the early stage of Alzheimer's disease. The treatment isn't covered by Medicare or Medicaid right now, and it comes with a huge price tag. Beth Thornton reports. Alzheimer's is a debilitating brain disease that causes memory loss and dementia. The disease affects more than 6 million people in the United States. Most, but not all, are over the age of 65. Right now, there's no cure. So when a new treatment that might slow the disease becomes available, it raises hope for patients and their families. Here's Lindsay Leonard, the executive director of the Central Coast Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, talking about FDA-approved Lakembi, also called Lakanumab. It works to remove the proteins in the brain that are thought to cause this disease. And in clinical trials, lecanemab was proven to slow the rate of cognitive decline by 27%. Leonard says there seems to be a window of time when the treatment works. So early detection of the disease, as well as early access to the medication, is key. But she says the cost for treatment is prohibitive for most patients, especially because Medicare and Medicaid won't cover it. Currently, the out-of-pocket expense is $26,500 per year. Another similar drug, Aduhelm, is also FDA-approved, expensive, and not covered. The Alzheimer's Association has filed a formal request with Medicare and Medicaid services, urging them to change their position. Pharmacy Director Marina Bartlett is with Central Coast Community Health Centers. They see patients of all ages in Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo counties, including many who are covered by Medicare and Medicaid. She says FDA accelerated approval is given to drugs likely to make a big difference for patients. They're so promising to the general public that they don't want to hinder it and wait for it to go through all of those clinical testings because it takes so much time. She says FDA approval does not automatically lead to Medicare coverage. 
just because a drug is approved by the FDA doesn't mean that any of the insurance companies are going to pay for it. The number one risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is being over the age of 65. Yet in some cases, patients are much younger. Tony Gonzalez from Santa Maria is only 48. He said no one, not even the doctors, expected someone so young to have early-stage dementia. And it took two years for a diagnosis. Unfortunately, everyone sees Alzheimer's dementia in only over 65, they immediately picture in their mind an elderly person. Over the years, Gonzalez worked in broadcasting and real estate, jobs that require quick thinking and the ability to multitask. He says he began to notice subtle changes, like forgetting a story or struggling to do basic math. Then he got lost driving home. I used to be, I went to work, I mowed the lawn. I don't do those things anymore. My son comes in and helps me. My daughter comes in and helps me. Gonzalez recently became a national spokesperson for the Alzheimer's Association. He says he wants to share his story and focus attention on the need for more research and resources. His wife, Corey, drives him where he needs to go. She says the dementia diagnosis came as a shock to both of them. I had seen gaps as far as his memory. I just really thought it was exhaustion or stress. Corey says she went through periods of disbelief and sadness. Then she studied up on the disease. I really delved into it. It's like, okay, what can I control? And uh, diet, exercise, brain exercises. Um, I, I just kind of took a hold of that, and I, I changed a lot of things for him. In addition to lifestyle changes and daily brain exercises, Tony participates in a support group through the Alzheimer's Association. He describes feeling anxious and shaky, especially in the late afternoons and says at those times, he relies on Corey's reassurances and a long nap. Gonzalez says the clinical trials for Lakembi are encouraging. He might even be a candidate for the drug. But whether or not he benefits directly, he says getting treatment shouldn't depend on your ability to pay out of pocket. For KCBX, I'm Beth Thornton. Central Coast Community Health Centers is a KCBX underwriter. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. There are several upcoming opportunities for Central Coast residents to comment on the future of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. They come amid the ongoing debate over how and if the plant's life should be extended. KCBX's Benjamin Perper has more. Diablo Canyon near Avila Beach was scheduled to close over the next two years until the California legislature voted last year to try to delay that. They authorized a $1.4 billion loan to the plant's operator, utility Pacific Gas and Electric, to go through the process of extending Diablo's life until 2030. It's a response to an energy crisis in California and Governor Gavin Newsom's push to keep carbon-free energy, like nuclear power, on the state's energy grid amid projected shortages and blackouts over the next few years. David Wiseman is with the nonprofit Alliance for Nuclear Responsibility, which describes itself as a nuclear watchdog group. He's an avid speaker at all the various hearings and public comment opportunities related to Diablo Canyon. You would need more dry erase boards than I have wall space for to track the complexity of all the different entities and organizations that are involved in what the governor undoubtedly thought was the simple request of asking, let's just keep Diablo Canyon running. But as with everything Diablo, the devil is always in the details. And those remain extraordinarily complex. They involve a multiple number of agencies, both at the state level and clearly at the federal level. And so, you know, it falls upon certain advocacy organizations to have to take on this is rather enormous task of parsing all the different parts of this picture 
that have to come together to make the governor's dream a reality, while at the same time realizing these very state agencies and entities that are charged with all the different parts of carrying this out under the law that was passed are already falling behind in meeting the deadlines for the various goals and places we're supposed to be in the process to make this happen. So it's complex, it's multi-layered, and the state who has the responsibility to execute it at this point is already falling behind. The most recent big news about Diablo has to do with PG&E's application to renew its federal license. The utility can't continue to operate the plant without a license renewal from the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or NRC. After the legislature passed the bill to try to extend Diablo's life, PG&E asked the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to reconsider an old application to renew the plant, which they submitted back in 2009. They dropped that application later on in 2018 after deciding they would be decommissioning the plant and no longer needed to renew it. Last month, the NRC rejected that request to reuse the old renewal application, meaning PG&E now has to submit a new one, a lengthy process that will likely happen later this year. While PG&E says reusing the old application would speed the renewal process up, the NRC's application denial was met with praise from those advocating for more scrutiny on this process, including Wiseman himself. Quite clearly, the plant has been on a downgraded situation on a glide path to closure, and maintenance has been allowed to lapse. Equipment purchases for what would be an extended period of time, capital improvements, have been deferred. So the NRC in this case is quite right in asserting the plant you'd like us to review is not in the state it was when we last did that. The rejection of NRC to PG&E's request to do something that, as they say, is against their regulations, well, it validates that, I would say, at least in this case, the NRC appears to actually be regulating. And that's a welcome change from previous behaviors on the part of that agency. Very often it takes a lawsuit to prompt the NRC to actually regulate correctly, even in following their own guidelines. But Wiseman says of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they are also capable of granting exemptions and waivers as they see fit. Proponents like Newsom and many state legislators argue the plant's life needs to be extended because it's a major producer of carbon-free energy, accounting for about 9% of the state's total energy portfolio. They say that's especially important as the state continues to face more severe weather as a result of climate change and that keeping the lights on is the priority. Wiseman acknowledges those climate and energy concerns, but says the public has not seen enough data to conclude that keeping Diablo Canyon open is the way to address them. What is the actual reliability need for the state? Is there actually a need to extend Diablo Canyon based on what we really know is coming online or won't be coming online? What are the actual costs involved with that? How much needs to be replaced? How much needs to be upgraded? Is the plant still seismically certifiable? What are those questions and answers? Finally, if we do a cost comparison analysis in the end, given what we are the uh, responsibilities, the obligations, is it cost effective? to actually continue the operation of Diablo Canyon. Something you would have hoped the legislators would have had in front of them on the night they voted on this bill at 107 in the morning, but they didn't. Wiseman says he and the Alliance for Nuclear Responsibility will keep pushing for this information to be available to lawmakers and the public. He also says the relicensing and continued operation of Diablo Canyon is not yet a done deal. There are a lot of moving parts at work here, any number of which could derail uh, this governor's ambitious attempt and they can come from forces that are external as far away as Washington, D.C., but it's also important to remember this is also about money. As much as people can talk about science and climate change, would PG&E be doing this if $1.4 billion wasn't being floated in front of them? And I'm pretty sure the answer to that one is no. And whose money is that? It turns out it's your money 
your state tax dollars. Sure, it's supposed to be coming back from the federal government, but now we've seen that has a lot of pitfalls as well. So it's all about the money, actually. They're not splitting atoms just for fun. And uh, this, is, this is a company that's been twice bankrupt in as many decades. You know, a convicted corporate felon, obstruction of justice, wildfire incidents, pipeline explosions to San Bruno. So um, I would say we should all beware and pay attention and um, follow the money. Those claims about PG&E's bankruptcies, convictions, and safety failures are all true. However, as to the question of the company's motive in reversing course on Diablo Canyon, spokesperson Suzanne Hassan says PG&E is committed to helping along the state's transition to renewable energy and is following the state's lead on how to do so. We're a state-regulated utility, so we follow the energy policies of the state of California. We've been asked to go in a different direction to meet the needs of the state of California. And until the conversation began about the shift to potential extended operations, we had been preparing for an orderly transition to decommissioning. Our safe operating record and our lasting commitments to safety and reliability are what have enabled this great renewed conversation about the plant's future on both state and national levels. Wiseman says upcoming public meetings are an opportunity for anyone concerned about Diablo Canyon's future to weigh in. Come out to every one of these public opportunities and speak or to go to their websites because you can provide written comments. And these things are also webcast. You don't even have to sit there in person. So I think that public involvement's key. The Diablo Canyon Independent Safety Committee is meeting Wednesday and Thursday at the Avila Lighthouse Suites with a Zoom live stream option available there as well. More information on that is online at dcisc.org. And for KCBX News, I'm Benjamin Perper. This is Issues and Ideas on KCBX, public radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman, and I am here today with Robin Coleman of Woods Humane Society. You are the Community Engagement Manager. <laughs> That's just a silly title. And most people just say Robin from Woods. That's Robin me. Robin from Woods. <laughs> That's me. I'm back. Yes. And tomorrow's Valentine's Day. We celebrate love every day at Woods, but what better time of year to talk a little bit more love for our pets. So yeah, I thought we could talk a little love languages today. Should we start with the dogs or the cats? Let's talk about the cats. because <laughs> they're, they're an interesting creature where they can be a little uh, misleading with their affections at times, a little harder to understand that body language, but they do have their own love language. So yeah, let's share a couple. Let's start with the cats. Some will be easy. Some will be like, of course they purr, right? But there's some that I found pretty interesting that I think is fun to share. And maybe it'll just make someone go right out and adopt a cat. Um, So of course they do their purring. They roll over. They like to do their head butting, making biscuits. So cute when you see them. Sometimes they'll need right on your lap. Sometimes they'll need their bed, their blankies, their certain little spots, pressing that dough, kneading that dough, and it's just a feel-good thing for them. It's usually when they're happy, usually some sort of energy release. When they're comfy and feeling good and snuggly and loving, they like to make those biscuits. They do the slow blink, especially shelter cats. That can be a calming behavior. They do it to us, and then we can give it back to them. So those slow blinks. So yeah, not fast. We want that slow. They like to stretch their butt up in that air. So that's when they're Mm -hmm. feeling pretty good. They're loving it. Uh, They do like the licking. That's part of their love language. They like to lick us. Of course, they do their meow, they play, they stretch. 
Growing up in the country, I know my cats did this. They like to bring us dead animals. Yes, on the doormat. Yeah, or sometimes my cats would just bring it right inside the house and be so (laughs) proud of themselves. But that is a love language. They are proud of themselves. They want to come and give you that gift that they are so proud that they just got that little poor little mouse. Our cats growing up when I was little, they would bring in some interesting finds. Their tail, uh, straight with the curl at the end or wrapping the tail around can signify friendship, which I thought was sweet. Of course, those little love bites, sometimes they give us little nibbles Mm -hmm. and they usually don't want us to stop petting them. So they'll give us a little love nibble. We call those love bites. They can gently offer their paw to kind of keep petting or keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. These are some of the more interesting ones I found. Um, Our research has suggested that cats map their owner's movements so they really keep track of us. They have mental memory of where you've been, where you're going. They're watching you, just so you know, Carol. They are watching you. (laughs) Did you know owning a cat is good for your heart and your health? That's why I'm hoping maybe someone listening is just going to go out and adopt a new cat. The sound of a cat purring nearby can be very soothing to people, especially their owners. Hearing that sweet little motorboat sound can have a therapeutic, stress-relieving effect. Plus, of course, it's just so endearing when we hear those purrs. There's something so calming for us, and that's a calming behavior for them as well. That purring can actually lower stress for the owner uh, as well as the cat. So that's a stress reliever right there. And I thought this was really fun that cat owners have lower blood pressure and reduced heart rates than people who don't own cats. So statistics show that a cat owner, yeah, cat owners are less likely to have heart attacks or cardiovascular disease. So when I read that, I thought, come on, doctor's orders. You go and get a cat, go get a dog. It's good for your heart in more ways than one, I think. So so that's our cats. And do you want to talk about a few dog languages? Yes. What are dogs' love languages? Of course we know that. We know a lot. Yeah, we know the wagging of the tail. Wag of the tail doesn't always mean happy good. That's also an alert. That's also Mm. a like, I'm not sure about what's about to happen. So sometimes, especially in the sheltering, we don't always think tail wags are necessarily a happy. Some people will be like, oh, they like me. The tail's wagging. That could also be like, I'm about to react to something. But you can tell some of those swishy back and forth tail wags. It's when they kind of stand up or more alert that's a little bit more there on guard, okay. but we know those happy tail wags. We call those yeah. wiggle butts. Of course, dogs are always seeking that physical contact with people. They want to sleep near us. They also like to stare at us. I know my dog does not let his eyes <laughs> off of me at my house. I don't care if I'm going to throw a piece of trash away, going to wash my hands. Yeah, that dog is always looking at me. I'll just doing? turn around and those eyes are staring at me. Um, of course, they like to lick us as well. They bring us their toys. Um, They love their human scent and the sound of happy praise means more to dogs than anything that's been studied by MRIs. When they get happy praise, that is the happiest dogs are is when their owners are giving them a a good boy boy. or good girl. I'm so proud of you. And this one I absolutely love is when 
they hear I love you from their owners, they had a 46% increase in their heartbeat out of excitement. So please, everybody, go home today. Tell those dogs that you love them and they're a good girl or a good boy. So I just wanted to share some of those. Oh, I think that's great. A lot of people know this, but what's the process for adopting? And let's say someone wants to come out now. Let's say we've convinced someone. Yes. Well, right now is a great time because we are still doing our Love is in the Air promotion at Woods. We have already found lots of cats and dogs homes during our promotion. We're offering $14 adoption fees for all adult cats and dogs at Woods at both locations. Does that include the spay, the neuter, the microchip? Yes. So it's the best $14 you could ever spend for years and years of love. That's priceless. But we want to make adoption easy. We want people to come to adopt. I shared with you before, shelters are full. We have a wait list of owner surrenders waiting to come Mm. in. Other animal shelters reaching out for help. So we continue to push hard to get these animals into homes. So that's why these promotions are fun. Just a little excitement and exposure. We are open for adoptions usually seven days a week. We have our San Luis Obispo shelter, which is right next to our county shelter. So it gives you an opportunity to visit both. And also we have our Atascadero, which is our North County shelter. They have cats, kittens, and a spay and neuter clinic. A lot of people still don't remember that we do have a shelter in North County, right Mm -hmm. in Atascadero. They are the cat experts. If you have any cat questions, if you need a little cat fur fix, that is the place to go. You can hang out. It's one big open room. Cats just come up to you. It's a really sweet environment. So check them out. Our website is updated daily. Some people definitely do ask, especially since the pandemic, how do I adopt? You don't need an appointment. We are open to the public. You can come in, visit our lobby. You can visit our cattery. We do one-on-one appointments for our doggies. So you can't just walk through, but we have a kiosk there. You check in, you see a couple animals that you might want to meet. We'll give you a one-on-one adoption counseling meeting so we can talk about the pet's history, information, help you decide if it's a good fit for you. And kids in the home do need to come out and meet the doggies first because we want to make sure that everybody's comfortable. And also dogs in the home. Doggies in the home do need to come out once you've picked a furry friend that you fell in love with we do require the kids and the dogs to have a quick meeting at woods they don't have to be best of friends because we know that process can take a little while but we really want to make sure there's nothing glaring a problem sometimes they just don't get along sometimes it gets better once they get home but we'll do just a supervised little walk sniff meet make sure the energies are matching and make sure to set you up for success so we again make adoption pretty easy but there are a few things we do require and and sometimes people want to come back a few times sometimes people fall in love instantly so we can do adoptions the same day or possibly come back the next day but our website's updated every day so you will fall in love like like I do every day yes. and what and the website again <laughs> woodshumanesociety.org and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for the cutest pet content Well, thank you so much for coming by, Robin Coleman. We love you guys. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Yes, Robin is the community engagement manager, or as she says, just Robin from Woods. There we go. All righty. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.